it's the idea that there, yes, software is malleable and you can change it and you can change your mind and everything, which is really cool. But if the cost of change reaches a certain point, you might as well not be able to change it because no one's going to do it because it's just going to be so expensive. But I think it's a really useful lens to put over just about any decision because there is a risk to doing things, usually. There's also a risk to not doing things. And understanding what those risks are and bringing other people into the conversation so that they can contribute to how impactful and how likely that risk actually is, is really, really important. And so if you give someone a, a true MVP and tell them it's a product that's going to solve their problem and it really is minimal and it's barely viable, they're going to see that as a, as a lesser quality, as a lower quality product, particularly if there's competing products and so on. Welcome to the TechWaka podcast, where we dive into the journeys of New Zealand's top tech leaders. Your host for today is Jakob, bringing you conversations with tech leaders and innovators from across Aotearoa. Join us as we uncover the experiences, challenges, and successes that shape our tech community. Kia ora. Today on TechWaka, we are excited to chat with Garrett Cronin, a key person in New Zealand's tech scene. Gard is known for helping tech companies grow and innovate. He's been a big part of Zero, leading their developer platform, and also worked for Orion Health, KiwiPlan, Embit, and currently is an independent consultant. Our talk today will dive into Gard's journey and what he thinks is next for tech in New Zealand and beyond. It's going to be a great conversation, full of insights from Gard, so tune in. Hi Gard, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's a, it's a new year and it's very busy. I'm very busy. There's a, there's a lot going on. It's really exciting to see so many different companies experiencing so many of the same challenges, but also having just so much they want to get on with. I think, I think there's a, after last year's sort of painful macroeconomic conditions, even though we're not really out of that yet, I, I, there's, a, there's a bit of optimism. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. And are you an optimist by nature? Yeah, I think I probably am an optimist okay. by nature. I'd call myself an optimistic skeptic. So I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature. I, I tend to question things, especially anything that looks a little bit flashy or new or people are getting excited about. I, I'm usually the, the person who's going, mm-hmm. well, things are that exciting. You know, it's worth having a little bit more of a look, scratching the surface, seeing what's going on there. But at the same time, I'm an optimist. I, I think humans, despite our flaws, we we usually battle our way through things and find solutions. So yeah, I'd, I'd call myself an optimist. Where I wanted to start, Garrett, is, is your, your blog. What is your most popular blog post? Yeah, it's the one I started out with, actually, which was the product roadmap needs a technology roadmap. And I think, oh, yes. yeah, that, that resonated. And I understand why, because I, I sort of wrote it as the Part of collected pattern that I've, I've observed, you know, I've, I used to joke to people that I collect software companies because I'd, I'd worked my way around most of the, the, the tech organizations and the, the big ones or the, the ones that were growing really, I suppose, the, the high profile software companies. And along the way, obviously you, you know, you sort of see patterns and when you're learning yourself and it's your first, first time leading a team. First time leading teams of teams, first time being part of a senior leadership team, first time facing a crisis, you know, all of those, those sorts of things. 
you're learning and so you, you don't have that opportunity to to reflect and triangulate and kind of go, oh well, I've seen this before kind of thing. But as you as you go on, you certainly do get to see the same same anti-patterns happening. And I I try not to write about anti-patterns because I think it's a little bit negative, you know, starting from, oh, the problem sort of sounds sounds a little bit moany, but I think it, there there are anti-patterns. And one of the anti-patterns, the one that kicked this one off for me, is I think where you have people who are good at stepping back, seeing the high-level problems in a business, you know, understanding, being able to paint a picture of where the business is going. And they're often to be found on the the very commercial and business business face, the sort of front end of the business is how some people describe it. And then there's this whole discipline around product leadership, which has sort of emerged in software more recently, you know, so it's really only in the last 10 or 15 years, I guess, product management has found its feet in software and it's not a new thing. Obviously it's been around for a long time, but product, ma- product leadership, a lot of that is about the similar sort of thing. And it's paint a picture about where we're going, outline a strategy, make some big decisions, some big chunky decisions about the things that need to be true in order for us to take a step towards that vision. And then let's articulate that as a roadmap. And it's, yeah, it's not always perfect, but it, it's, it's usually there. But then the thing that always gets sort of left behind is the technology version of all of that. And so what I was trying to say is that, you know, I think every time that you're talking about business vision and strategy and roadmaps and product vision, strategy and roadmaps, you've really got to also be pairing that with a, a technology vision, strategy and roadmap. And it's also about thinking in horizons. And I think this is something else that, that tends to get lost, particularly when Companies are under pressure and they're often under pressure. Early stage companies get under pressure. Mid stage companies get under pressure. Corporates get under pressure. You know, where you're, you're being pushed and you, you tend to focus on the here and now and the problems you can see right in front of your face. And the tendency is to, to want to cram everything into that, that right in front of your face planning horizon. Or maybe you painted a really good long-term planning horizon, but you're kind of missing the middle bit and that that execution of strategy is the thing that, that makes a big difference. And if you've got business people in a technology company who perhaps don't have a really deep understanding of the technology, they will struggle to know what it is they're actually looking for from the technology people in the organization to help them do that planning. And I, and I think that's where, you know, architecture plays a, a really big role. And it's one of, one of the first questions I, you know, I'll ask someone if, if they're, if I'm talking to a business and they're now thinking about scaling or they're thinking about tackling big business problems and things, and they're thinking about the shape of their engineering team and all of those kinds of things. And I say, well, how do you do architecture? You know, who's, who's your architect? And they, they often will describe their head of engineering or a principal developer or something like that. And what they're, they're actually missing someone who is working in those planning horizons that are a little bit further out or that really important middle planning horizon of strategy where it's like, what are those big decisions we have to make? You know, one of my favorite books, Release It by Jeff Nygaard, which actually does talk about anti-patterns, but in a, in a kind of chunky one to two year and three to 10 year kind of planning horizon way. 
And he's one of the people who sort of, he doesn't call them one-way door decisions. I think that's a, a Bezos thing, but it's effectively that. It's the idea that there, yes, software is malleable and you can change it and you can change your mind and everything, which is really cool. But if the cost of change reaches a certain point, you might as well not be able to change it because no one's going to do it because it's just going to be so expensive. And I think if you don't have that technology roadmap and that technology strategy running alongside the business and product ones, and it all, you know, blended together and everyone's understanding each other's dependencies, then there's a real risk that you're going to sleepwalk into those kinds of decisions. And the next thing you know, you're having this repeating meeting about engineers screaming about tech debt and, you know, how come we never get to address that business people go, oh, I know what you guys are talking about. Why don't, can't you just do this? You know, surely it can't be that hard. My, my son who just graduated could do it in a weekend, you know, and it's the sort of misunderstanding and, and the, the lack of alignment between those things. And so what I was writing about primarily was really the, you know, how could you actually paint a picture like that and have empathy for each other's positions? But I think there's also another important part that sits behind that, which is the kinds of conversations that those, that people in those different specialties have with each other. And particularly, you know, one of the things I've always found a little bit frustrating is where people don't feel like they've got a responsibility to tell a story in a way that other people can understand it. And it, and it's equally true for all parts of an organization. You know, there's a tendency to jump into to jargon. So you might have a, you know, a CFO trying to explain a financial um, reality or commercial reality and impatient um, developers eyes glazing over kind of frustrated because they hey, stop talking about this stuff. This is boring kind of thing. And then vice versa, right? Stop it with your technical jargon. Why are you talking about these things? I'm not a technical person. I'm not interested. And I think if you're in a business together, you've all got to be interested in everything and you don't have to understand all the details and things, but each one of those parties has a responsibility to figure out a way to paint a picture that is interesting and can be understood by everyone else. So, you know, te technical practitioners need to feel responsible for explaining their world and the, the challenges and putting it into that higher level framework to the business people, product people and vice versa, you know, and so that, that was really where that one came from. And I, I think it's like, it, it's really possible, but it just takes a bit of time and a little bit of, of effort. And so what I wanted to do is put that in a story with an example. So I could sort of say, you know, well, but this is, this is what we're talking about. Right. And then when you think about things like scaling, you don't, you don't build, you don't make technology scale for the sake of making technology scale. Like it would be wrong to shoot straight for web scale and go, oh, you know, we'll, we'll make this thing so that millions and millions of users can use it. If your business is never really going to get past a few hundred users, I mean, why would you do that? And you know, but then it's not enough to technology people to go, okay, what are our business objectives? And if they're not, if they're not getting good answers to that, they can lean in and push really hard, right? So they can actually say, you know, no, 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 I want to know concrete numbers. So please, products person, you, you said that, yeah, we're, we're looking at major growth over the, over the next six months. What is that? Who is it? Like, who's, who, where's it coming from? Because I think even, even someone who spends most of their time in that world and is looking at things like, you know, user numbers and audience size and TAM and TAM and SOM and all these sort of measures of, you know, how big is our addressable market? Who are we targeting and all that kind of thing? If they can explain why they, they're making those assumptions, it's quite possible that the developers themselves will start going and the, and the architects and the engineering leaders and things, well, that's interesting. So hold on, 
I, I don't quite understand that. You know, where, how are you jumping to that assumption? Well, have you thought about this? Like what would happen? Would that audience change in this way? And so there's a really healthy conversation there where you actually get down to business objectives and start talking in really concrete terms about, well, we think we're going to end up in these countries. That could mean a user base of this. So let's prepare for that. But we're not expecting that to happen for the next year. You know, it's a year beyond that. So let's not paint ourselves in a corner and, and stop being able to evolve the architecture. But at the same time, let's be pragmatic. And let's just get the things into place that are actually going to make sense given those business objectives. There was a lot of things that stood out for me, Garrett. I think a couple of things I, I want to comment on. One mm -hmm. is I loved how you said, you know, that these people in different domains or who with different interests, they need to talk to each other. And it reminded me, I think it was, oh, I can't remember the, the, the book now, but there was a book where it was said that every person working for a business is a businessman. Yes. Even though if yep. you don't own a business, you're still a businessman. You should understand how your business works in order to know how you're supported, how you contribute. Absolutely. To it. So as, as you said, that's why the finance person should try and understand or speak in a language that's going to allow developers to understand and vice versa. Um, yeah. I think that's really important. Otherwise, we just talk about concepts that one understands, but we think that they understand because they are nodding. Exactly. And that's, that's a real danger, right? When, when people all assume each other have each other's viewpoint, but they're all actually pointing in a different direction. Things go very wrong. Yeah. And then the, the second thing, and I wonder what you think about this, you know, when you talk about these different time horizons and how you've got business objectives and then product objectives and technology objectives. And when I think about strategy, I go back to the book by Richard Rumald, The Good Strategy, Best Strategy. And he talks about diagnosis, you know, where you are, when you, where you want to be and what is the diagnosis or what's stopping you from getting there. And for me, that's an important part of this planning in technology, knowing these business objectives and product objectives. And then if we want to get there with our product, what is the delta between where we are right now, where we want to be? And how can we close this gap with technology? How can technology help us? And so it can be skills that we are missing, you know, scale mm -hmm. that we are missing, architecture, we are missing. what is it? I think that is useful just to think what the gap is. And mm -hmm. because Absolutely. So I sometimes feel like, oh, I need to have these brilliant ideas to come up, you know, or architecture, but actually just see, thinking what are the impediments or what is the, what the gap is helps me to change how I think about this. Yes, I think that that's true. And it's also... It's never as simple as what is the gap, of course. It's sort of, there's, there's a risk calculation in there as well. And I think, you know, I talk yeah. a lot about risk, particularly with the, the companies I work with, because I, I think it's a really useful lens to put over just about any decision, because there is a risk to doing things, usually. There's also a risk to not doing things. And understanding what those risks are and bringing other people into the conversation so that they can contribute to how impactful and how likely that risk actually is, is really, really important. And, you know, we see lots of, of tools that have been used for years and years to sort of attempt to calculate what a risk, what a likelihood and, and the severity and, you know, therefore an impact of a risk actually is. And for these tools are not, you know, hard to use and they, they generally people have a pretty good understanding of them. But it's really important to look at those things that are building up into that strategy of, you know, what are those gaps where we can, we need to close and what's the gap, what's the risk of not doing that? And what's the risk of doing mm. it? You know, like what, what are all the factors around that? Because I think again, you know, in terms of 
everyone getting on the same page and being part of the conversation and things, technology people will, will sometimes forget to that they need to exp explain really carefully and tell a really good story about those risks and, and what kind of risk might be posed because there's too many conversations that go someone from the front end of the business saying, well, we just have to do this thing. Someone in the technology part of the business going, oh, okay, I guess if we have to. Whereas if they're just carefully explained what the risks of doing that are, the, the person in the front end of the business will go, oh, oh, okay. Oh, well, that, that puts a different light on it. You know, maybe we, we need to think about this in a different way kind of thing. So I think that's the other really important thing that, that needs to come into those kinds of conversations. And another blog post of yours that uh, I often go back to is, is the one that where you explain the new iron triangle, when you turn, you know, the, the trio of scope resources and speed, and you turn it into value, time to market and capacity. How did you come up with that idea? Why do you think it's important to talk differently in, uh, about that? Yeah. So, well, really software were the ones who published though, that particular way of looking at those okay. three dimensions. I took it a little bit further. So I, yes. I squeezed the triangle into a different shape and talk about the quality aspect of that and, you know, that the relationship to the value delivered. But I think the, the old iron triangle, you know, it, it's still stuck in people's heads, like project delivery and, and thinking about life as, as delivery of projects is a, a habit. It's an organizational habit. And uh, it's very rare to find disciplines where it really holds true. It's always a compromise thinking about things as projects. And, and it's particularly not useful in software because, you know, the way that we build products today is we build something that's supposed to last for a very long time. And that wasn't always true. People used to build software solutions that were designed to last a short time. They did, typically didn't though. They usually lasted a really long time. I don't, I don't think perhaps everyone really realized just that, you know, the kind of longevity of a software product that when you're building something, there's every likelihood 30 or 40 years from now, that thing will still be there with a lot of the original technology and so on. And so thinking about things in terms of, you know, not, not a time frame. like here's the beginning, here's the end. Now we're done. All right. Walk away. You know, it's maintenance time or whatever. No, no, that's just not realistic to think about it that way. So instead it's, it's really important to think about more in, in terms of what, what is it that we do in product then, you know? So, so it's not projects. What is it that we do in product? And to me, it's, it's really all about optimizing value, like delivered value in a particular time frame. And, you know, technology is a, in a software company or any kind of technology company, the technology is a, is a really important value creator because, you know, presumably you're making something new or novel. Like if you're just rebuilding something that already exists, you're probably not generating a lot of value. So talking about it in terms of scope doesn't really make sense because if your scope just contains something that already exists, well, you're not really generating any value at all. And then. Thinking about, you know, you always start with the customer, right? Like that, that's a, just a fundamental part of creating any kind of product is it, who is this customer? What is their problem? You know, where are they? How many of them are there? What does their life look like? Like, what am I, what am I doing for them? That's all really a, a value question. And then the optimization, the thing that, you know, every product leader, every technology leader is doing is how can we get that delivered value into a particular time frame? And, and the way that that time frame tends to operate is time to market. So how, how quickly can the value be realized? 
And realized value is only true if users are actually getting the value from it, if the customers are getting the value from it. And so that sort of suggests that, you know, oh, okay, so you're going to need to have a way to measure that as well, because you can't, you can't calculate how much value you've delivered unless there's, you've got some feedback loop to understand what's actually going on. And you say, okay, cool. So now, rather than thinking about, you know, scope and schedule, we're thinking about value and we're thinking about time to market. And so the, the time to the realized value is also important from a competitive standpoint, because it's like, well, there's presumably other people trying to solve this problem. And so the, you know, the shorter time to market we have, the more of a jump we might have on them, but only if we deliver enough value. And then the, you know, the final constraint, of course, is the capacity. And that's the one where I started extending the model a little bit. And that's where mm-hmm. I get my wonky, tr- wonky triangle from, because yeah. I, it's, you know, it, particularly if you haven't spent any time growing and, and building teams of engineers, which, you know, generally your average senior leadership team, the people who haven't been involved in, in technology directly like that probably haven't. It's easy to think of of software engineers as someone you just, you get them and you stick them at their desk and you point them at the code and away they go and we're all good. Now we've got some more capacity. But people like you and me have been doing this for a while, realize that there's just all of these things that have to happen before capacity can be expanded. And, you know, like when, whenever I estimate, I've often been asked when I've been working at software companies to, in this, another whole subject, sorry, a bit of a sidebar, but mergers and acquisitions, right? So we, we're looking at acquiring a, a software product and you have an investment committee looking at something and, and some specialists, you know, trying to understand from corporate development, looking at something and going, hey, should we buy this thing? And that a team within the business will often do is say, can't we just build it ourselves? Like, what would it take to build it ourselves? And so they're literally asking for, can you just quickly calculate how long it would take you and how much, so how much money it would take you to, how much capacity and how long will it take you to rebuild that thing that we're thinking about buying in a simple decision. So if we're going to buy it for $5 million, how much could you build it for? And I always say with the time frame thing, I go, well, it's going to take two years. And they say, what? What what have you, why? It doesn't seem like it should take that long. It seems like a, a small product kind of thing. And so it's not. It's not the, the number of people you put on this stuff, right? So back to mythical mammoth and all those sorts of things. There are some things that just take time. There's, there's things that take elapsed time. And the sorts of things that take elapsed time are what makes changing capacity really hard in an iron triangle. Because you, if you advertise for a new software engineer and you haven't got an ad up yet, you've got to write an ad. You've got to post it on a site. You've got to have enough people go and see it might have to go call some recruiters and things. You've got to take people away from their day jobs to do some interviewing. There's just a whole series of things that no matter how many people you throw at this thing, you can't compress that, that time frame anymore. And so there's all this elapsed time. And that elapsed time, I reckon, adds up to roughly six months when it comes to building a whole new team. Because by the time you've got those ads up and you've found people and selected them and settled them in, they've been through induction of, of some kind and all that sort of thing, at least three months. And by the time they've talked to enough people, had enough coffees, spent enough time looking at the code, making some mistakes, fixing some bugs and all that sort of thing, it's probably another three months. And so it's a really good engineer or a group of engineers, if you're lucky and to stumble upon a bunch of them and have enough leadership for them, six months, you might be able to get a team up and working, but realistically to get a team really humming, it's probably a year out. So yes, you can make a, you can make a decision about, okay, I think we should release our product three months sooner. 
Sure, you can do that. You can make a decision about, I think we should be delivering more value by building this feature instead of this feature, or we should go test this first or whatever it is. But changing capacity is something that you can't just go, right, we're just going to do this tomorrow. It just, it doesn't work. And so when these sort of decisions are being made, and this was particularly true in growing companies. And so it might be an early stage company that's just got a bunch of funding, or it might be a company that's doing quite well and it's progressing onto its, onto its next sort of stage. It's very common for a product and engineering team to come to the front end of the business and say, it's going to take us this long to deliver this thing that you want to unlock these customers so that we can, you know, make these sales and so on. And the very first question out of their, month, out of their mouths, if there's money around, is how can you do it faster? What, what can we do? Can we give you some more money? What would happen if you gave you one? What if we wrote a blank check? You know, what would that help? And it's such a hard conversation to have to, to go back and say, no, it won't help. It's, it's not going to help. And then it follows this amazing circuit that I've been around so many times where we start talking about outsourcing and insourcing and offshoring and, you know, what if we did this and what if we did this and what if we did this and that. And the reality is that, yeah, there's a slim chance you might be able to pull off one of those things and, and really, you know, get a burst of capacity, or maybe you're really well prepared and you've spent a couple of years building a fantastic partnership with someone who just happens to have a whole bunch of engineers waiting on a, on a bench. Cool. Maybe that will work. But if you're just starting from the point of, oh, okay, let's get started on this now, you can't change capacity like that. And so that's what gives me my, my wonky triangle is, you know, the fact that capacity is not something that should be considered as an equal partner in that triangle of what can we change? So we don't like this situation. We need to do something different. Shall we change value? Shall we change time to market? Shall we change capacity? Well, sure. But that capacity one is going to take some real time to change. And so it's, it's important to do that. And then I just threw into the mix because I think it is a, a really significant thing is the relationship between quality and value and, you know, delivered value or scope is often sort of set aside as if it's not a quality attribute. So when people think about quality, they think about reliability, you know, availability, responsiveness, those sorts of non-functional quality attributes. But the reality is for a user, the quality of the product, a big part of that is the value that it delivers. And so if you give someone a, a true MVP and tell them it's a product that's going to solve their problem and it really is minimal and it's barely viable, they're going to see that as a, as a lesser quality, it's a lower quality product, particularly if there's competing products and so on. And so the temptation to mess around with value and, or can we make it a bit more minimal? Can we make it a bit leaner? We'll just trim this off, trim this off kind of thing. What you're really doing there is starting to bend the quality dimension as well. And, and the theory with, you know, the iron triangle of quality is something that's held constant. And obviously if you're, if you're doing a big civil engineering project, then theoretically there's a base quality standard that you're keeping to. But as we know from the rest of us is around the world, that's not always true either. So, you know, I, I think wonky triangle, that's you can't change in the short term. Every time you tweak value, you're actually tweaking quality. You just got to think about all those things and that big balance of what are we actually doing here. Beautiful. Um, it's, it's going back to maybe to the Kano model that describes, you know, what are the features that users just need to have, otherwise they will just not even consider buying a product. And for them, it's going to be quality. They, they will see this product has poor quality, cannot do what I need it to do. So even awesome. though it may have, it may have zero bugs, yep. or maybe you're reliable and maybe super secure, but if it doesn't do these two things, I yep. will not even look at the website because it doesn't do what I need it to do. Exactly. Is that, you know, that friction plays into it a lot. And you, know, you mean every time I do this, I have to click here and then click here and then copy this from here to here. Uh, yeah. Like, I just, 
not really solving my problem. Like you're costing me time here. This is not a, there's no delight. And you know, that, that delight, we all know it, the, the, you know, those magical products where you have that, it doesn't happen very often, unfortunately, but when you, you find a product and it just solves your problem so well. And a big part of that, I think is that, you know, that functional value that it's delivering, that's, it's that quality experience and you're right, have a very snappy tool, but if it doesn't solve the problem, you know, it's, yeah, it's just not going to work. Thank you, Garrett. Uh, it, it is fascinating. And, and since we are talking about models, is there any other model that, that you loved or that you're interested in? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to talk about the four-legged stool. Okay. <laughs> so it's, and this is different to the three-legged stool. It's got one more leg. When software teams, so what, what is most important in, in successful software development, right? And technology delivery of any kind, it's collaboration. So if, if everyone is working together, collaborating, so assuming you've got, you've got the right capabilities and skills, you, you're building the right thing, you know how to build it, you know, got good practices and processes and that sort of stuff. And it's all going along nicely. None of that will work if, if there's no collaboration. And so collaboration is really, really important to, to hold the whole thing together, the, the process, the, the making of stuff. And we talked a bit about that before with, in terms of aligning business objectives and product and technology and, and so on. And so the three amigos model is, is a really, you know, common way of thinking about this, where we have products, we have technology and we have design. And so design with a capital D, so, you know, full on product design in terms of thinking about users and their problems and practicing design and thinking and so on. Technology in terms of architecture and engineering and how we assemble of all, all of those sorts of things. And product leadership is, is the other one in, in terms of thinking about the, the commercials, the, the user and what problem we're solving and the value proposition and so on. So we, we thought about that at zero when we were developing product frameworks and things, but we quickly realized that the way that we operated was actually a four-legged stool. There were four amigos, inconvenient, but true. And mm -hmm. so the fourth leg of the stool really is, is product marketing. And product marketing is not, it's, it's different to the kind of go-to-market activities that happen beyond product marketing. And it's one of, one of the hard things, I think, for software companies to figure out is where those boundaries lie between product leaders, product marketers and marketers, you know, and all things like the pragmatic marketing framework and so on, which are sort of designed to, to think about that. But I, I like to think about it a little bit more simply in terms of the, the four legs. And I think that fourth leg of product marketing often gets forgotten, but I've seen it when it, when it's there and it's treated as an equal bleed within, within the leadership of a, of a product software team, it's, it's very, very, very powerful. And what it is, is that someone who's who's a specialist or a team who are specialists in thinking about customer value proposition and this messaging, so storytelling of that customer value proposition, because there's nothing sadder than the three amigos doing a spectacular job of pulling all of this together. But when the users or customers are receiving it, they just don't understand what it's for. So maybe they just, they see it go by and they ignore it because they didn't understand how that was going to solve their problem. Or maybe that it's actually wrong. Like it doesn't quite solve the problem the way it was supposed to. And so we're, we're pretty good these days in software, right? And shifting left, we do a lot of shifting left. We shift left on testing, we shift left on security, we shift left on all sorts of things. I'd argue that a big part of the, the four-legged stool is shifting left on product marketing. So it's actually starting from the perspective of what is our 
value proposition? What is our customer value proposition? And that sometimes tends to drive the conversation about who is the customer because that's often forgotten or the plural product leaders trying to get that across the line, but facing resistance. Now they've got an ally and thinking about who that customer is and how are we going to tell that story and then going and testing it, but testing the story. And it's a little bit like sort of Eric Riesling startup, that kind of thing. It's a lean thinking approach. You know, his is a bit more extreme. It's, it's sort of like, let's actually build something and try it with the customer, the classic kind of, you know, fix your email address here to sign up for our newsletter for our new product that doesn't exist yet. But it's a bit more authentic than that and a bit more, you know, developed than that. It's like, we've actually written the story of, of what we think we're building here. Might be a whole product, might just be a little feature, whatever it is. And going and taking that to some real users and seeing whether that value prop actually resonates with them in the way the story is being told. And maybe the story is wrong. Maybe it's not put quite right. Or maybe the problem's been misunderstood. But whatever it is, that's actually going to be done really early. And sometimes, you know, the product leaders are the ones who are kind of driving that process. But I think it really is a different sort of discipline. And because it goes all the way through that, when it comes to actually delivering the product, that actually has to go to market. It's got to be launched. That value story has actually got to become you know, messaging and promotion and all the, all of the things that happen in a go-to-market campaign. And so I think bringing that inside the software team and really shifting left on it is a, an important thing. So there we go. There's, there's one model, the, the four-legged stool. Well, that's interesting. And I can, I can see that. And I know at my company, we, we do talk about product marketing as something separate and we have never considered that. I was thinking about four amigos in a bit different way. Of course, product design technology or engineering is, is, is part of the three amigos. The four amigos I've been thinking about was around data, because oh. I think, you know, how, how do you, we often build these products and then how are we going to measure the impact of the product and how are we going to actually use the data that the product generates? Often it's an art afterthought and we don't have the data or we don't have it in the right way or, you know, we, we and often we forget about it. That that's, comes later and we ask questions. How is the product going? Now, can we use the data? Maybe predict something or you, you know, use some machine learning that which is you know, all yeah. trendy, but we can't. And yeah. I, I've been thinking that data is the fourth amigo. Interesting. And changed my mind. Yeah, well, maybe yeah, maybe we've got a fifth leg. Maybe, maybe we have a fifth leg. Maybe we just have some reinforcing around the four legs. But that data, I mean, a big part of that data, right, is that having product people and product marketing people who understand data and, and how important it is and are thinking about those measures from the very first day, that, that, is, that is one way to address some of that data. Some, some of the data questions you were talking about there, there are more, a little bit more internal to the products. And, I, and again, I think it comes back to that empathy. You really want an engineering team, technology team who deeply understand what people are going to do with the data. I can't believe we're still in this position. And I, I saw this the other day where reporting is almost like the last requirement that someone thinks about in a, in a technology solution. Whereas that's the only reason people take to your software. They want insights from it. So yeah, it's useful to be able to, you know, put some data in and get the data back out, but like form style, but then you could do that with a spreadsheet, you know, you could do that with paper and what people are really looking for is the kind of insights that get driven from scale and making connections and that sort of thing. And so if a team's busy building a product and haven't thought yet about what people are going to do with the insights from the data, then that's sort of not really building a product. But they've forgotten about the customer. They haven't actually asked them what they're going to do at the, at the other end of it. And yeah, I think, I think you're right there. It is a, is a very important part of it. Okay. Well, and since we are talking about models, I have one more question. 
uh, about the the grayness curve, which is on your on your website, and I didn't know this before before yesterday when I look at you know in more details at your website, and I was like, oh, you know, from evolution and and revolution and how organization grows in these different phases, and I was fascinated about it and. Selfishly, I would love to learn more. Could yeah, you, could sure. you, you know, it, it's, it must be it's, important for you since it's on your website. So tell us. It, it is, it is. And it, the reason is that it's, uh, this is what I do now, right? So in my, in my new job, which is, which is as a, an independent consultant, I, I help people through inflection points. And the reason I think about it as inflection points is because of this paper. <laughs> so a long time ago, back in, 2007 to 2009, as a technologist who knew absolutely nothing about business, I got sent back to university, basically. So, so I was a you know computer science graduate, and was a, a programmer, and as it was called back then, was a Java programmer, and then you know I became a team leader, and then a, a head of development and things. And at that at that stage, I just I really knew nothing about business. I used to sort of throw the business section aside of the paper. And I joined a management team. And of course, you know, one of the things you have to do is do stuff like looking at charts of accounts. And I had no idea what I was looking at. Like I really, really didn't understand how businesses drive value and, and what that, what those commercial drivers are lying behind things and how people measure it. And so the, the guy who was running the company I was working for at the time, Kiwi Plan, suggested that I go do an MBA. And I, I thought... I was going there to learn hard skills like accounting, law, and you know finance and that sort of thing, which you know came with it. But the more important thing they taught was that shifting of mindset around you know like what is business and because it was at Auckland, it was a very New Zealand oriented, so it's like New Zealand place in the world and weightless exports. And you know I I got to understand what sort of role technology plays in New Zealand's economy, which is. Is a, I believe it's still, it's an extremely important role and I, I wish it played an even more important role. And so one of the papers that I did as part of that MBA was, I think it was the paper that was called growth and it was literally about growth, like what are growing businesses and so on. And one of the, one of the papers that was originally published in the Harvard Business Review was this paper by Larry Grainer, which I've got linked from my, my website. And it talked about this curve and these inflection points. And it made a lot of sense to me. Like it just really resonated. I was like, oh, I see. So that, you know, there are real patterns to this. Like there's a, a stage that a business goes through. And, you know, most businesses, I, I co-founded a, a startup and I was, you know, actively hands-on CTOing in it for a few years. And that really early stage, it's totally chaotic, right? You, you sort of, I mean, I was at that stage, I was experienced enough to know what kinds of processes and things we needed. And I put a, you know, a lot of stuff in there early on, but it's still pretty chaotic. You're still, you're trying to find a business model that works. You're trying to find customers. You're doing experiments all the time. It's sort of all over the place. And as you grow, you reach an inflection point where that just doesn't work anymore. And so that inflection point comes when, with that particular business, which is called Ambit. And so that we were taking advantage of the, the first AI spring that of recent years where chatbots were pretty cool. And so we were, we made this enterprise chatbot platform. And I re I think I got asked for a security questionnaire response. So it was the, the, the cake, the cloud assessment information questionnaire, which CSA do. 
and I didn't have any like that right. So we had, you know, sort of had adopted reasonable information security practices, but not something that could, you know, meet a compliance needs for a, a customer who was had their own compliance needs and needed to pass them through, kind of thing. And so I was forced at that point to it was it was summer and it was Christmas, and I, I remember sitting outside under the pergola basically writing a complete information security manual from scratch according to the cake, just kind of picking and choosing from what we were sort of already doing and then building a training course. And then the first thing I did when everyone went back in January was to force everyone to sit down and have some information security training and assessments and all the rest of it. And so, you know, that was an inflection point we were hitting because we'd reached a stage where we had serious customers who were paying reasonably serious money and had expectations and one of those expectations where there needed to be some processes and they needed to be repeatable. So that, that compliance driver, and it works a little bit differently to that now, but that, that's an example of one of the things that tends to happen as you hit that, that next inflection point. And these inflection points happen all the, all the time. And I've observed them myself with technology teams where, you know, the difference between having, well, your first two developers or something, you know, it's like founding CTO and a couple of developers. And having a fully fledged team where you've got varying skill levels and so on, like that's a big jump from one to the other. And then it happens again when you sort of got your extra team. So now you've got two teams of developers and there's a level of coordination that's required. And so you got to like, get through this inflection point. And the inflection point is it requires a certain response to those things. You know, maybe you need to document some stuff. Maybe you need to introduce an induction program. Maybe you need some new skills that weren't there before, some new capabilities in terms of leading people. Maybe some of the people who were there at the beginning and were thriving, they're not thriving anymore and it's actually time for them to leave and for other people to take their place. And so there's, there's a whole lot of things that have to happen to get through those and companies tend to, to die at those inflection points. And the death isn't necessarily um, rapid, right? It's more like a plateau. So it's sort of you go up, 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 oh, stuck. And it's a classic sort of sigmoid curve thing, you know, S-curve where you, you you've just got this plateau and maybe the plateau just stays like that. And it's a very long, slow death. But the idea is that you have a, some kind of response to it, some sort of change. And one of the things I've found through time is that sometimes these inflection points are subtle enough that you actually have to manufacture a bit of crisis as well. So that it might be that it requires a crisis-like response to something that's actually not that much of a crisis, but you know, good change management always needs this, this sort of compelling thing, this sense that, oh, we really have to actually, you know, we've got to do this. Like, it's not going to get better unless we, we do this thing. And a, a company like, you know, Zero, I spent six years there. We went, went through a definite inflection point, I think, when we went sort of from the 2,000 customers to the, the 3,000, and then again up to the 5,000, sorry, customers. When we went from sort of the 2,000 employees to um, 3,000 employees, I think there was an inflection point in there when we, and as part of the response to that sort of, we were really edging up to that growth was when we had our first professional CEO, right? So Rod Drury moved out of the business, Steve Amos came on, and there were a bunch of things that had to happen to generate really what was almost a return on investment for the early shareholders to free up the kind of capital and then the liquidity that went along with that so that the business could really take that next step and hire like mad and so on. And then there was another inflection point that happened last year where the business had overgrown. So it was sort of 
was doing the same things, hiring loads of people and things, but the the efficiency had been lost and it was getting less and less efficient instead of more and more efficient. Some of the things from the first inflection point, like getting consistency in development practices and technology use and things, they've been resolved, which was great. But now crashing into this next inflection point where it's like, yeah, we've got all these people and capabilities and things, but we're not really executing very well because there's actually just too many people and they're not organized in a way that this works. And and that sort of crisis requires the kinds of things which happened, which was, you know, like laying off 17% of the staff, which is from a human perspective is a horrible thing, but from a straight up commercial and how companies grow perspective, it's, it's sort of a necessary thing. There's lots of ways to do it. Perhaps it happened a little bit sooner, then it wouldn't have had to be quite so painful. But there's a lot of external factors that that play into that as well, like the macroeconomics and things, you know, as the squeeze came on, that just made that sense of urgency and crisis a bit more. But that's basically it. And then the other thing that Grainer does is he sort of talks about, you know, not just the age of the organization and the growth, but the speed at which you had these inflection points and the differences in high growth industries, medium growth industries, low growth industries, as he calls them. The, the reality is with software, we're almost always in a high growth industry. If we're a digital function within a big corporate, perhaps we're in a, you know, low growth, but pretty unusual. Usually we're, when uh, businesses are technology driven or are using a lot of technology, which is the sort of ones that we tend to be involved in, they're, they're usually high growth industries. Oh, thank you, Gareth. It was a true pleasure to meet you and to have this conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and all, all the good luck in 2024. You are very welcome. Thank you. It's been fun. That was Gareth Cronin. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. My name is Jakub. And this was Tech Waka Podcast, where we explore journeys of New Zealand tech leaders. Bye.